What we know and what I can measure on my force plate on a daily basis is that when people have got cushioning between their feet uh, and the ground, they will land harder. And the science behind this goes back decades where they found that gymnasts landing on um, big foam mats, they land harder as if their feet are trying to seek the floor. Where is the ground? Where is the stability? So this has been known for a long time, uh, but we are led to believe that we need to wrap ourselves up in a lot of cotton wool um, in order to protect ourselves from the impact. And the reality is there should not be excessive impact. If, if you're moving uh, fluidly and comfortably, that impact doesn't really happen. Uh, there is more impact than walking, yes, for sure, because you're coming from being up in the sky, landing with gravity and uh, your body weight. But it doesn't, if you're effective and efficient, it, it actually is measured to be no more than twice your body weight forces. Whereas if you're, if you're inefficient and you're not noticing enough, it can be up to seven times your body weight. That was Helen Hall on impact forces, cushioned shoes, and efficient running technique. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle simulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the Freelap Timing System in KBox or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that, as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid, which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of collecting of data collecting strips, the Contact Grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than uh, being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Welcome to episode 180 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and our guest today is Helen Hall. Helen is, amongst other things, a running coach, a biomechanist, and an accomplished endurance athlete herself. Helen is the author of the book, Even With Your Shoes On, which is a comprehensive manual on teaching running in a natural manner based on the sensory capabilities of the human body. That, that book is the reason that I initially found Helen. I saw it was recommended by Gary Ward. Gary, who is an expert in human biomechanics, anatomy, as well as the feet and pronation. And I really wanted to see Gary having recommended this 
uh, a, a look at a work combining some of Gary's principles with uh, an athletic movement, gait and running. And I was totally blown away by the book. It was something that really tied a lot of concepts together for me. A lot of these concepts being things like building, uh, we, we talk about the term um, function dictate or structure dictating function or the, um, the structural capabilities of the human body dictating the technique, which we could expand to if you read the book, the structural and the ability of our body to sense and engage our own structure to create a technique um, in how we run. And so on the show today, and, and let me get to this first before I talk about the topics that Helen and I are, are going to dig into, is that running tends to get um, a little bit of a bad rap, especially in, in the fitness and especially in the strength and conditioning sports performance community. And it's one of those things where it, it, there's a certain categories and buckets that's like running, stretching. It, you, there's these things that's like just, it's bad for you, don't do it. At the end of the day, a lot of things are in shades of gray, but in terms of running, as Helen will very well address in our very first question, is this is something we are naturally born to do. And compared to the animals, we're actually really good at it. Whereas you'll see like a tiger jump or something and they can jump like five feet in the air and we can't come close, um, five feet vertically. But we're really good endurance runners. And so why is it that so many people get hurt doing this when running and running as a form of fitness is the most common thing? All right, so on the show today, Helen and I are going to get into running as a natural form of exercise uh, and then into the important questions of how a person can find their own best running technique through a process of noticing rather than hardline rigid cues. Helen is going to then get into the idea of activating and moving joints as a superior, um, as a superior training technique, warm-up, priming, uh, priming exercise versus concentric muscle activation, uh, i.e. basically doing joint mobilizations versus clamshells and body weight glute, glute bridges and things like that. She's going to talk about utilizing lunge variations and to variations of lunges to see if runners can optimally activate their glutes. She's going to talk about an awareness-based running paradigm uh, going from a sagittal, frontal, and transverse plane sequence rather than a quote-unquote do this, run like this sequence. So using a series of noticing and awareness exercises to help um, athletes self-organize running on their own versus just simply giving them cues and ideas. Uh, finally, she's going to talk about how to optimize the running posture using wall-based alignments and she's also going to go into how to fix crossover gait and optimize one's tracking width while running, which is, goes beyond even running, too. I watch athletes doing hurdle hops and various motions, and you see tracking with issues show up. How you do anything is how you do everything. So in terms of just getting athletes to move better, be better, be more injury-resistant, and beyond, and if you work with anyone in the general running community, this is a huge plus. This is a great episode. It is incredibly in-depth. And I'm happy to have Helen on the show today. All right. Uh, last thing before we get to it, by the way, um, is there's a lot. There's a few exercises that go with what Helen's talking about. Um, so if you're curious what some of these drills look like, these awareness, noticing, joint, movement-based drills, uh, head on over to Just Fly Sports. Check out the show notes. And there are eight videos there that are going to go in-depth on these things. All right. That being said, let's get on to the show with Helen Hall. So one of the, with running, and I think this is, to me, I love running. My, my um, background and my, I, I'm a track, uh, in the speed and power side of things, the jumps and sprints and all that. But at the same time, like human gait is human gait. Like, and, and I think that a lot of people 
could, uh, it's something to really be appreciated. And I think not only that, but just the fact of how big it is in the fitness space. And one of the books that I read recently, and it kind of, my my thinking has been turning in this, in the sense that I used to be a little bit more of the, oh, running, running is a really poor form of fitness. If you do distance running, it's going to make you X, Y, and Z, and you're going to get hurt and all these things. And a lot of people certainly do. So I want to ask you this, and and obviously that book, the book came out with Christopher McDougall and Born to Run, but are we born to run? And why do people look so down so much on running as a form of exercise? They do, don't they? It's I, it's weird. So I passionately believe we're born to run because toddlers are at it before they even really can walk well. And uh, I always, I, I giggle when... Uh, we hear stories about the first steps and then when the toddler is putting quite a few steps together uh, there's no applause and when they go into their first trot there's there's absolutely no applause at all but they're running it's just another pace uh, when one foot is still on the ground it's a walking gait and if there's no feet on the ground at some point and then a foot comes down because we're not birds then it's running so it's just another speed, another gear. So absolutely, one foot in front of the other, at a, a whole array of different speeds is what we do. That's what human beings do best, in my opinion. And going further and going long is what we do best of all, because not stopping is in our enduring uh, evolutionary history, just keeping going until we can stop. So, yeah, I think we're, we're born to run. And the, I, I think that the reasons it's, it's looked down on, because you're absolutely right, it is, is the propensity of injury um, and then the connection of a lot of running and the propensity to injury being uh, morphed into a statement that says running injures you. Not running that is injurious because... It, it is the most natural thing like walking in the world. You, you don't have to do anything other than go a little bit faster. But I think that people have got, have become disconnected from the way that they're doing anything. Nobody notices anything. So they, they put their shoes on and, and they quite understandably think that all they have to do is, is run. But if you're doing something repetitively, over and over again poorly. Uh, so say, uh, as an example, uh, screwing, um, doing some DIY and screwing with a really, uh, with, without any attention to um, the, the way that you're screwing, if it's at an angle or anything like that, and, and then you get an RSI injury to the wrist or the elbow, um, you would actually maybe connect the way that you were doing it to the pain. But with walking and with running, people don't seem to connect the way that they are moving to their pain. They just blame the running per se, just the whole generic thing. So I get people coming to see me. My consultant, my surgeon says that I mustn't run. And I say, well, OK, he's perhaps missed um, a word. Don't run badly. Uh, don't run meanly. Don't be mean to your body when you run. Run, but but don't be mean. So let's have a look at why notice how you're walking how you're running and maybe if you're not if you notice something that's a little bit mean then you can correct that 
I could I couldn't agree more. And I love that anecdote of people notice things with their upper body in your hands uh, much more quickly than you would ever notice when your feet. And that's the story of my life. I know the first time I was in uh, Colorado last year and Stephen Sashin of Zero Shoes gave me a pair of uh, trail, like minimal barefoot style trail shoes. And I went out running in the mountains of Colorado and it was just unbelievable how like you pick up, I, I mean, and let alone actually actually running barefoot, but it was amazing experience, like how much my feet were picking up every little rock and stone and things like that. And you think of the, the I think it's the Tamumara, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but the tribe that runs in the sand, the, the minimalist sandals, the homemade sandals, basically. And, and You're right, Tamumara, yeah. Yeah, and and I, I could agree more that it's it's running badly. And I think that I don't blame anyone for saying, well, distance running is bad when you go and see the local half marathon and see how, you know, nine out of 10 or 19 out of 20 people run by, which is more of like, it's kind of like more of a slog death march type type movement than it is like joyful, active sensory running where you're actually feeling what you're doing. And, and I, and I know we'll get to a lot of this stuff as we go uh, forward, but even this, the idea of just you're wearing cushioned shoes and flat, con- you know, flat pavement and everything else that goes with that versus, yeah, having children myself and you watch them run on the playground and it's just like the easiest thing in the world. And you could just extrapolate that out for however long they wanted to run before they're, you know, they got tired of their aerobic system or, or whatever it was. And so it, it, it definitely makes so much sense to me. I, and one of the things that I think is I'd like to get to is we, we talk about run technique, like if someone's, and you said this to sense and feel. And so what's, if someone is running incorrectly, and I think this could, for everyone listening, this could, is not just distance running, this could go to all types of running and sprinting and movement. But what how, what's your thought process with helping someone to find a running technique that they won't get hurt and find the joy of running and and be them their best self in, in the form of running? Yeah. So the... The other thing that, um, uh, just to backtrack slightly in order to answer that question um, fully, when they run um, and they get injured, it's it. the question is, is it how their body wants to run or is it what they think that they ought to be doing because they've read something or they've been told something, uh, they've Googled something or they've seen something or they're mimicking something? So if it's not what their body actually wants to do, but it's being inflicted on them, uh, being inflicted on the body by an opinion, uh, their opinion, their perceived opinion, somebody else's opinion, then it's quite possible that the body might not like it. And uh, if we if we go back to notice what our body is happy doing, then we're probably going to be able to go through the gears more effectively um, without pain and injury and enjoy it more. So it's not about uh, telling people how to, because that boils down to an opinion again. And that I think is part of the problem that uh, is out there that is rampant, that you run like this or um, uh, you lean forward or you don't lean forward or you, uh, you pick your feet up or you pick your knees up uh, or you land here or you land there. Uh, and there, there's uh, there's a lot of confusion because so many of these um, these guidelines contradict each other. So so then you you start to think about well how much of the way that I'm running 
is is down to how I think I ought to be running instead of how I actually run. How can I run? So when uh, people say, just like you have just asked, correcting, I, I want my, I want to see if I'm running right. Uh, can you correct my run technique? Uh, can you tell me how to run? And I will start by exploring, well, how how do you walk? And then when you go from your walk into your run, what changes? So sometimes people's, uh, the where they make first contact doesn't change. So they walk uh, rolling from heel to toe and then they move into their run and they're still rolling from heel to toe. So then the question is, if they've got a lot of injuries, is, is uh, the first contact on the heel part of the story? Because what we know and what I can measure on my force plate on a daily basis is that when people have got cushioning between their feet uh, and the ground, they will land harder. And the science behind this goes back decades, where they found that gymnasts landing on um, big foam mats, they land harder as if their feet are trying to seek the floor. Where is the ground? Where is the stability? So this has been known for a long time. uh, But we are led to believe that we need to wrap ourselves up in a lot of cotton wool um, in order to protect ourselves from the impact. And the reality is there should not be excessive impact. If if you're moving uh, fluidly and comfortably, that impact doesn't really happen. Uh, There is more impact than walking, yes, for sure, because you're coming from being up in the sky, landing with gravity and uh, your body weight. But it doesn't, if you're effective and efficient, it it actually is measured to be no more than twice your body weight forces. Whereas if you're you're inefficient and you're not noticing enough, it can be up to seven times your body weight, which over a period of time, that would give you the RSI that the screwing in with the screwdriver gave you overnight. Repetitively, that's going to eventually have um, an impact. So how to go about running correcting running technique is just it starts with noticing well what do you do as as a a hopefully a highlighting example of this is at the beginning of a workshop i will always start with okay uh hands up who knows that they land uh on their rear foot first and there'll be a smattering of hands that go up and then there'll be okay uh, how who lands not on their heels somewhere in front of their heels and another smattering of hands go up and then the question is uh, who doesn't know where they land and then more hands than anybody else go up and then i say okay keep your hands up if you've been injured and you've connected your injury to running and of course the hands stay up so if you don't even know where you are landing repetitively over and over again, is it any wonder that you end up being injured? You're simply not noticing things until things are broken. And you may have noticed things along the way getting more and more painful, but because you've heard that running hurts, right? That pain and running, they they go together like a horse and carriage. Uh, they just, that's normal. So they accept the pain as a normal part of the running experience. And in, in my experience, no, it is not. Pain is an indication that something is wrong and your brain is trying to ask you to change stuff or stop for a minute and just <laughs> see what's going on. And the ignoring the pain because they accept it, they think it's part of the story, leads them to the injury. 
So essentially, if I had to kind of summarize that, you're saying um, that it's the people, no, people just don't pay attention to how they run. And you start from a sensory, like teaching them to feel and teaching them to sense uh, rather than saying, and I see this in track too all the time in the, you know, someone, and I love how you said, how does it change when they walk to when they run? Because walking, because nobody has the preconceived, um, um, constructed version of how to walk. Generally, they just yeah. walk how they walk. But as soon as they run, then all the the manufactured stuff starts to hit. And uh, I, I, you know, I've never even I know I've read your whole book, and for I, I'm sure I remember reading that somewhere. But I'm glad you mentioned that again because it just makes so much sense. It's like when does when does this become manufactured? Something that's artificial, and as soon as it does, it's 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 laying the grounds for something uh, for suboptimal movement to happen and uh, so when uh, in in terms of t- how do you teach people to run uh sensing and i know we're going to get to this in like the the sagittal plane and frontal plane but uh how do you teach people to sense their body better like what's the what's the progression that that goes with that and in, in terms of someone who's running is off and they've been injured how do you, where do you start? And, and I guess you said, like you said, the heel and just do you even do it? But what's the basic progression from, for teaching them to run in a natural way, the way their body would, um, would want to move? Well, I, I deliberately named the book, even with your shoes on, because I didn't want it to be about barefoot. I am passionate about not having much on my feet. I prefer it, but I don't want that to be, I don't think it should be the be on an end or. If you want to have something on your feet and and you want to have cushioning on your feet for whatever reason, it shouldn't preclude you from being able to feel and sense what's going on in your body. So if somebody is not aware of what they're doing, all they have to do is uh, jump on the spot. So I will always start with, okay, well, you don't know where you land, just jump on the spot. So now you've got two feet telling you exactly where they're landing and, uh, 100% 100% of the hundreds and hundreds and thousands, I don't know how many people I have ever had involvement with, with running, they have always landed not on their heel. When they jump up and down on the spot, they land somewhere in front of the heel. And they haven't decided where in front of the heel, it's just somewhere in front of the heel. And, and then I ask them, okay, try and land on the heel. And they can't. Your central nervous system self-protects and you jump and down the, jump up and down the spot and you try and land on your heel and your body will just protect you every single time. And if you do manage by going from one foot to the other, so you're not really coming from up in the sky to down on two heels together, but you can kind of manage it from one foot to the other with not very much airtime you'll actually find it's really lumpy and uncomfortable and you don't really want to continue. So that, just that alone tends to send a seed of thought of, wow, I I hadn't even noticed that. And, And then the noticing theme is easy. It's just finding the way in to start the noticing process. Once that's started, it's easy. Then they start noticing all sorts of stuff, particularly in any other runner they see. So from not noticing anything about runners to then um, in the first session with somebody, they'll start, they'll see another running pass and they'll say, oh, look at their whatever they've just noticed. Look at their elbow poking out. Look at his leg. It's out to the side or or look, they look like a banana. And they have never noticed that before. But the, the starting of the noticing 
just sows this seed that sprouts and creates this great crop practically instantly. So it's not difficult. It's an exponential curve. It's, there's no way that this is, has ever been linear. People just start soaking it up and then changing things internally because it feels better. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, I love it. And I, I think about how many coaches, I, I wasn't exposed to a coach who worked on the basis of noticing. Well, the first time ever was in reading Timothy Galway's Inner Game of Tennis, where he would teach people to play tennis more by just noticing. Notice how the ball is spinning or notice how it sounds coming off your racket rather than hard line cues. And I think there's there's a lot of different ways to coach tennis. I think that way, um, it definitely worked really well for people who were like, uh, I think a big population he worked with was like the the wives of like wealthy businessmen who would try to play tennis with their husbands. I think they were trying to be coached into it, you know, swing like this and just got frustrated. And then it became, well, just notice how the ball hits and everything would improve dramatically. And I know there, there's some few different schools of thought on there's a Brad Gilbert uh, wrote a book called Winning Ugly, which was the opposite, which is a very strategic and tactical. And obviously in a game, like in a ball game, there's a lot of different sides to it. And in something as pure as running, which isn't really um, as much, I think there's not as much the strategy element. I, I mean, there's different types of coaching. There's the, there is the do this and do this. And that's like, I feel like that's 95 to 98% of coaching is, is on more on doing than noticing. I, like I was about to say, I didn't, I wasn't exposed to a coach who taught me to notice till about three, four years ago, and I'm 36. And so it's definitely the minority. Um, I'm trying to even think of where I was getting with that question. I just think it's I just think it's so important to teach people that. Oh, oh, here's what I was going to ask: Is do you ever um, do you would you ever in the process of working with a runner uh, ever say, well? maybe you should look more like X, Y, and Z, or is it entirely um, driven through a, a series of, of no, or I guess I know with the drills, like the, the Amazonian hunchback, there is a, you know, you, you there's a, a guideline or a guidepost, but is there ever room for, I guess we could, what we could call internal cues in your system where we tell an athlete, well, let's maybe look a little bit more like this or look at this runner and think about is is that ever does that play a role at all in your system? Or do you have any thoughts on those types of ideas or or, or, or coaching instructions? It, it, it I tend to if I if I feel as if if I say to somebody, uh, make those same shapes that you see somebody else make, they are doing something. And it's the doing instead of the letting that messes with the timing. You've got 200 milliseconds for an amazing array of joint actions, uh, catapult loadings and recoils to happen. If you put your poke your finger in with a doing because you're you're trying to make something happen instead of let what was going to happen happen you mess with the timing and things start to go slightly awry towards very awry um i started going back to age 12 uh, down the back lane uh it started by being curious as to well oh it, oh crikey uh, when I did that, it felt easier. Oh, when I did that, it felt harder. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and I grew my awareness of I could have more speed 
for less effort when I was a teenager, just because there was nobody there to do any coaching. Coaching doesn't even exist then. Uh, this is, um, I was, uh, this was late 70s, mid to late 70s, when uh, running, jogging was only just, well, I don't think it had arrived in the UK at all. It might have been in America, but it wasn't in the UK. So this was just running just for the, you know, just getting out and playing and having freedom. Um, and just going, uh, picking up on that lovely story about um, noticing the the sound a ball makes, you can even uh, notice the effort level that you're in, the zone that you're in. Instead of relying on a gadget telling you the zone you're in, you can listen to the, the sound of your breathing and that will tell you where you are. And I have watched competitors in transition faffing around trying to pair their Garmin to their heart rate monitor okay. so that they didn't go over the zone that they were meant to be in to complete uh, the endurance challenge instead of having the internal awareness of what that effort level should have felt like. They were there in 10 minutes in transition trying to pair a gadget. And all you have to do is listen. So when you are in Uber Easy, uh, the, your vision is panoramic. You can tap into all of your senses. Your vision will be panoramic. And the sound of your breathing will be quieter than the birds and the planes overhead and the wind and the traffic. And then gradually, as your gears go up and your zones change, uh, the level of intensity of training changes, then there'll be a proportionate amount of your breathing getting louder, uh, your vision getting uh, more tunneled, and then uh, finally being in tunnel vision, which is the, the, the exciting, that so exciting place to run where uh, you're on the edge of your aerobic limits to go faster. It is self-limiting because it becomes anaerobic, but the, the sound of your breathing, your regular breathing, which hasn't become irregular yet, is uh, the strongest noise, the loudest noise. You can't hear the traffic or the wind. It's just you and your breath. And it's exciting. It's an exciting place to be because you know that just that little bit too much more effort and it's all going to go raggedy. So yeah, it, it's deep, deep um, internal knowledge rather than external. With external guidance, the guidance from outside is not the problem. It's, it's the then, the guidance I feel telling somebody to do something rather than asking that person to let something happen or, or feel for something happening. What does that feel like? When you, when you let this happen, what does that feel like? So I might say, let your legs dangle. What does that feel like? And if I, if I see in front of me that 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 accesses the whole breadth of their foot rather than just one edge of their foot, then I know that they're going to get access to more of their foot. So what does that feel like? They let something happen. What does that feel like? Okay, take that internal awareness away home with you and practice that. They're not doing anything. They're just letting something happen with a connection to the feeling so that then that becomes um, a new motor program. I, I, lo I love that stuff. And something that's uh, resonated with me uh, that I've learned through some of the athletes I've worked with is I I took on working with swimmers really, really for the first time about seven years ago. And 
something I, I've slowly started to learn over time is the, the best、um, underwater kickers in swimming. I've had discussions with some of these people. I've been able to work with some of the best in, in the world in this regard. And I've asked them, like, well, well, were you, was this something that you were really coached into, or was it something that you just, through your own awareness and just over time, over time, over time, just feeling the water and figuring it out and through awareness? And it's more just the continual, meticulous practice on their own end, feeling and becoming aware and understanding, because it's such a complex, The act of kicking underwater in the water environment is such a complex thing. It's like Bruce, Lee's, Bruce Lee famous for saying, I think you, you, you can never you figure out how to swim until you jump in the water. Like you know, someone could tell you all the instructions in the world.、Um, I think even versus our upright running is, is you know, complex movement enough, but then water, you have all this tension in different angles. And I've definitely become aware of how much the self awareness component is so critical of that. And then, of course, In, in human movement, too. I, it's something that I, I've, I, I feel like, and just how you mentioned, too, I, I love how you talked about、um, the technology element of it. I, I do agree that some feedback is, is clearly important, but one of the biggest memories I had when I was,、um, I was a track and cross country coach at Wilmington College for four years, but as a cross country coach, it was more like the guy that holds the stopwatch and tells people their splits every now and then. But I, Everyone would always go out with their watch. And I really remember one、uh, conference championship where one, our top runner,、um, he, he basically, like, I think he, I remember him like, physically like, throwing his watch off of himself like, right when he started because he didn't want to have to look at the time or think about his pace or anything. Like, he just wanted to run with the leaders. He had three or four guys in front of him and he just threw his watch off, didn't want to think about pace or anything else. And, and he had by far the race of his life best, best time, best finish in the conference. And, I just, I'm, I'm continually reminded of those, our, our own, even like the idea of、uh, we live in such a technological society, everything is monitored, there's an app for anything. It's almost like our intuition is slowly being,、um, I, I mean, I think that some of those things for establishing a baseline can be good and getting you familiar, but it's almost as if our internal intuition and human power is slowly being taken away in that regard. It's our ability to sense ourselves. And I'm continually reminded of that and just, How you mentioned that, I, I think it's just such an important point, not just running, but really everything, you know? I think that、uh, the, it, it's the order of things. The, the tech isn't the answer, but marrying the sense to the tech so that you have data, so that this, this sense of intensity equals that heart rate. Well, that's, that, that can be really useful information when that same sense. Of effort has a higher heart rate. And then you might think, because you are marrying the internal senses with the availability of tech, and you think, well,、uh, why is that?、Um, did I sleep well? Am I hydrated well? Maybe I'm going down with something. something. So it's not,、um, I, am, I am tech queen in my clinic here. I've got the most advanced gate analysis technology in the world. I'm only the third person to have this machine. So I'm not anti tech at all. But it's so important to get it the right way around. The tech supports what we do, it doesn't dictate. And there's a lovely story in the book、um, Peak by Anders Ericsson, where he talks about an athlete who was、uh, trying to get this four minute mile, trying to get this four minute mile. And、uh, he knew his splits. And if he, if he wasn't on it with his splits, it was all going to go to a bag of worms. And then one day, Uh, he, he decided he was going to rely on his mate、uh, by the side of the track 
um, uh, rather than keep looking at his watch, wondering if looking at his watch was changing his form, which of course it is. I see people run with chicken wings because they're so used to looking at their watch that their elbow is always out at the ready. So yes, of course it's affecting form. So he had this friend track side who was guiding him with his yay and uh, you need to speed up or slow down or whatever coding they had. And his mate got it all wrong. And, and he's, he, he thought, well, I'm, I'm ahead. Well, that doesn't feel like I'm ahead. Blimey, I must be feeling good. And he went on to nail that which he never had managed before because his mate got it wrong. He had a sense of, blimey, that feels easy, floated into less, less strain and effort trying and achieved the fastest time he'd ever managed without ever looking at his watch and with a complete change of perception in his head about what was necessary. I, I, I love those stories. Like just to, to have that intuitive sense or like even just the, the to be a pacemaker, the art of pacemaking yourself. Like I always felt like that was something in college that I, I wanted to be good at internally knowing how to fast to run each sprint without overdoing it. My, my goal whenever I ran 200s or 300s as a jumper was to never over sprint those because I didn't want to have negative effects from those that would affect my power days. And, and I would always see other teammates just blow it out of the water on a few of them. And like, you always see, I've always seen these athletes who have like no sense of what the time is. (laughs) And and just to cultivate that internal sense, I think is important. And, but I also, um, I also did want to bring it back quickly to, you mentioned how there, there is, I mean, tech is not bad. Like I, it's important for feedback. I know um, something I always I always remember is Tony Holler, who's been on this a sprint coach from Illinois, has been on the show a few times. Has talked about doing a flying ten meter sprint with athletes where they get a, a gradual acceleration, then sprint as fast as they can for ten meters through a series of gates, and they get a time. And that that time is really important because he says he sees athletes trying something subtly different every time. And the time just tells them, I think you mentioned something similar to this a little earlier, like the time tells you if you were successful or not, that thing you tried. Um, But I think it's also important that that thing they tried isn't necessarily something the coach told them to do. They kind of maybe were creative and thought of it a little bit on themselves. They get instant feedback. They try something again, a little subtly different. I think we all do that to a degree, but to to rely on it whole, like for everything, um, can you lose that sense of intuition and awareness? It's like there is a to understand how I guess those two can separate is I think is important. Mm. It, it, there's a, it's a similar thing, the disconnect uh, from the ground, the feet to the ground, we've become disconnected there. And then we've come, become disconnected to the internal sensory guidelines because of uh, the advancement of tech. And it's simply bringing it all back together again, have the tech, but have the sensory guidelines internally have the shoes, but maybe maybe have um, something uh, that doesn't squish your shoes, uh, squish your feet much. Maybe just something less fettering, less um, restricting. Uh, the same as uh, a heart rate monitor, if you have it really tight so it doesn't fall down. Is that actually impeding your breathing mechanism? Are you restricting your ribcage movement? The, the, all of these things are important noticings. It's not just what you're feeling inside your body, it's how your external 
uh, gadgets, um, clothing, footwear, all of these things are affecting the way that your body is moving. And all of these are on the table. They are all little efficiency pockets waiting to be uh, explored and uh, used yeah, to your advantage. Yeah, right on. It reminds me of, uh, I mean, we can talk about this later, but the, the Lemney device that you talk about in your book is like a, it's like a tech, but a piece of feedback at the same time. Um, yeah. So I would do, before I get to that, I want to get to my next question for you, which is something that I love this acronym in your book. Um, it's um, WUJWUM or W-J-W-U-M. Uh, can you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell me what that, what the, what does that stand for? And why does that supersede what we would call muscle activation or activate your glutes in when yeah. preparing athletes to run, train, or whatever they're doing? Yeah. Lovely. Woodrum. I, I, Woodrum means wake up joints to wake up muscles. And uh, it comes from uh, Gary Ward's uh, work, The Body of Work, Anatomy Motion, uh, where he talks about joints act and muscles react. In the field of gravity, uh, it's the movement of the joints that creates a response in the soft tissue. And the movement of the joints, there's so many joints crossed by swathes of soft tissue. So uh, there's many ways to skin a cat. Um, the, if, and, and if you are contracting a muscle rather than thinking about uh, a joint movement, uh, the contraction of the muscle as you move affects the timing of uh, what you're trying to do. So if you're, um, for instance, that I hear that the, the glute activation all the time, uh, uh, activate your glutes as you run. Well, if you, uh, if you start to squeeze your glutes with every stride, you actually, apart from messing with your timing, you actually will break yourself. You will break. Hauling ass is, is a, a great way of stopping. So, one on level nine, when you're going, when you're flying downhill, you you learn to squeeze one butt cheek and then the other mm -hmm. in close uh, succession and you will grind to a great big halt. So you've got to be careful what muscles you're thinking about activating. Uh, in Statically in the gym is one thing in motion uh, to activate a muscle, to contract a muscle. Actually, you because it's now too slow. You, you've, you've put the brake on everything because it's too slow. Whereas if you know that the muscle gets activated when a joint moves, you can rely on that muscle activation happening because as you move, the joint is moving. So the joints, the woodworms are standing still drills where you focus on the joint movement to access the, the muscular loading to then notice whether or not the joint even moves. Because if you discover in a standing drill when you're paying attention to a joint moving, which is actually easier than uh, sensing, because some people, uh, you know, activate your tricep. Well, they, they won't really know what to do to activate their tricep. But if you ask them to extend their elbow, they can extend their elbow. So the, the, the language becomes easier for the, the person to... Uh, uh, channel the energy into the right area to get the result that they're after. So the woodworms um, are shapes 
that the body should be able to make because of the, the joint articulations are binary where we are the shapes we make are directly uh, dictated to by the joint articulations which are just as they are it's the bone ends on bone ends and it's three-dimensional and it's black and white and and we are we stand on nice solid ground there muscles that cross more than one joint they it becomes quite complicated what are you are you are you wanting the hip to extend or or to flex uh uh, are we having some external rotation or some internal rotation? That this is three-dimensional with the muscle. You can, and if you just focus on the joint in its three dimensions, it's just much simpler. And by doing it in order, in the sagittal plane, side view, in the frontal plane, uh, when you're looking from either the front of the body or the back of the body with movement left to right, or twisting things, if you if you can um, focus in on a movement of a joint in a plane and ask the question, is it, is it moving? Because if I then know what muscles cross that joint and I now know that those joints aren't really moving and when I put the whole body together, some, some aren't and some aren't, you can get a real feel of what, what muscles are able to fire in 200 milliseconds because that's the time they need to fire in with each footfall and if it's not happening in slow-mo it's never happening when you're moving even walking it's only 600 milliseconds so it's a way of finding out if the muscle is ever able to activate so i see runners who come in their glutes are like little peaches up by their ears they're fantastic but their pelvis never moves when they run so their glutes are never firing even though the muscle is there ready to work because they've done all of the clams and the crab walking and whatever else they're not actually utilizing the potential that is there waiting for them to to grab and run with because the pelvis isn't moving therefore the joint uh the, the joint between the pelvis and the thigh bone is only moving to a degree not to its wholeness so we haven't got the complete activation of that muscle did that answer your question that was a very long explanation yeah no it, it definitely did but i'd like to maybe ask a couple a uh, little clarifying questions and then i know we're going to get into like the sagittal plane frontal plane transverse plane model of teaching which is i uh, just just phenomenal but i think that uh, very simply that that is definitely that principle has definitely manifested itself in how i warm up athletes rather than i think when I, about seven years ago i was probably in more the traditional methods of things let's do some clamshells and some uh glute marches and and this that and the other that is all um like concentric based muscle activity there's not really it's not something that fits with joint movement whereas now everything is uh, a variation of a crawl and a lunge and a crouch walk and and things that where the joints are always moving and it's like because that that type of stuff not only does that get the muscles working, but it also acts as a, sc- a real-time screen. Like if someone is doing a, a crouch walk or a lunge and they're always, they can't get any internal rotation, they're super externally rotated or a crouch walk and they can't uh, stay upright with their torso There's or they're crawling and there's no like frontal plane rib motion. These things are, they're, they're screens as well. And if they're not doing those things, well, just doing working the muscle associated with that movement. I don't know how you know effective that's going to be because they can't, they can't move. <laughs> and so I, um, 
so let's just say maybe for could we use a lunge as an example um if and i know you have a lot of lunge variations in uh in your book and in the different um like wujwams and the the cogs i think they're called uh, mm-hmm. So what? How would you use a lunge to see if an athlete was able to utilize their glutes in the course of running? Just as an example for what you're talking about. So, uh, if um, a runner is, if I see a runner not moving their pelvis, so they're running, but the pelvis doesn't move. The legs move um, backwards and forwards, but the pelvis doesn't do anything. It doesn't seesaw. There's no rotation. There's no butt cheek swap. Uh, Then, and they don't, they have no idea of the fact that their pelvis isn't moving. Then I might use uh, one of the lunge uh, uh, cogs to, or wujwams. So there's there's a a wujwam tends to go to end range and uh, and a cog or, or any kind of drill, it just, it doesn't find that, um, that moment of pregnant pause before you get the recoil. So there's a, there's a slight difference throughout the book, whether or not we're finding that moment of catapult recoil or whether we're, we're just opening a joint out to f- explore the three-dimensional um, muscle activation. So a lunge is, is invariably used as a way to, in three dimensions, wake up whatever muscle group happens to be crossing it. And of course, it's going to be the glutes in a lunge. So we can we can slow down a lunge uh, position to make sure that we have everything that we need to fire the glutes. So if the glutes, when they contract, they extend uh, the hip. So we need to flex the hip to load it. Uh, the glutes um, uh, abduct the hip, so we need to adduct the hip to load it. The glutes externally rotate the hip, so we need to internally rotate the hip to load it. So if we can access internal rotation, adduction, and hip flexion in a position that uh, is comfortable uh, towards end range, but not reaching that moment of um, recoil because this isn't gait now. This is just a, a position, a shape that we're making. Then after a few of those, if we then compare a before and after, we should be able to see and the person feel the change in their muscle activation. So there'll be a run up and down and I'll think, oh, that's not moving. So we'll find uh, a drill that loads that muscle tissue that uh, is crossing that bone that isn't moving. We'll find that in three dimensions and then they'll run up and down again and be fueled by a muscle that's now woken up because we woke the joints up. And they will feel the difference. They don't have to activate the muscle. The muscle has been activated by the fact that you've moved the joint in a sympathetic three-dimensional way in order to load the muscle sympathetically in, in, in terms of nicely, uh, constructively, not meanly, productively, but in the way that it's meant to be used and moved. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I like how you I like how you pair sensory work with the the drill or the run itself. I think a lot of times we tend to silo out a lot of training means we we say okay, well let's do all these exercises in one canister 
and then just you do your sport in another. And I think for a lot of athletes that works out fine, but I, I think that it doesn't really cultivate awareness and we can't, we can't check if what we're doing is effective or not. We just kind of hope it all transfers over in a way. And I, granted, it's not always if, if for those coaches who are working with large groups, that's not necessarily the easiest thing to do, if not impossible in some cases. But I, I like um, in being able to work in the finer points and one-on-ones to be able to use those sensory movements and see if it makes a difference. And uh, I, I like to get into, uh, I know it's, it's hard to describe some of these movements on audio only. <laughs> it's one of those things where PowerPoint presentation, here's the video, and maybe we can describe it as best we can, but I would like to spend the last little bit of this show talking about how you go through that sagittal plane, frontal plane, transverse plane um, assessment, and then how you use some interventions. And I know we probably, if <laughs> to not have this be a three-hour episode, we probably have to be a little bit brief. But and that the whole sagittal frontal transverse thing, I I, I think it resonates not just with running, but but everything. The first time I heard it, that it was was maybe even just for the weight room, and I heard uh, Pat Davidson, a trainer here in the states, talking about how we to to use that same mentality of 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 mastering the sagittal plane first in the gym then the frontal plane, and then the transverse, rather than just doing everything at once haphazardly. I've heard uh, people like Mike Robertson, uh, very well-known over here, say the same thing. And I think, so I think in the gym, this is starting to catch on, which is great. I But I think that no one really thinks about it in running. And your book was the first book that I've ever read where I was like, whoa, this is in running too. This is awesome. Like, here's a series and a progression of how to approach this in not just the gym, but human movement itself, but gait itself, like the things that actually athletes are actually doing in sport. And anyways, um, so could you take me through how you start with the sagittal plane in, in allowing someone to notice themselves and be aware better and, and, and improve their running? Uh, and then maybe take me through the planes with uh, some, I, I guess we could, as much time as you need, but uh, take me through the, the planes and how you go about that process. Okay, so to be constructively helpful here, it's uh, in the gym, historically, uh, sagittal plane movement has dominated. So uh, I, I've had it said to me that, okay, it, but everything is sagittal plane. It's everything is being dominated by sagittal plane. And, but, and, and it's true, uh, bicep curls and leg extension, there's lots of sagittal plane. The point uh, with starting with alignment in the sagittal plane, it's it's more about that. It's not movement in the sagittal plane. It's alignment. So side view alignment. To be as efficient as we can be, the uh, because the head is is very heavy. It's an eighth of your body weight uh, when you're proportional. Uh, if if the head can be perched effortlessly on top of the spine with the muscles there to move the head, not to hang on to it, then the head is the pointy bit of the umbrella and the rib cage is the umbrella over the pelvis underneath it and then finally the feet on the floor. So it's not about being rigidly upright, it's about being um, what one of my lovely friends and clients described erect at ease. So it's finding that place where you're not wasting any energy in stopping yourself face planting, not wasting any energy 
with a rib cage behind the pelvis running like roadrunner, which is a break. So in the side view, looking at a runner and thinking, well, they're hanging on to their head and they have knee pain. So it's where are the problems and it is the problem in the sagittal plane or the frontal plane. So if somebody comes to me and they, t- they tell me that they get headaches or they get knee pain uh, or they get uh, calf, repetitive calf strains um, or high hemitendonitis is another common one, then I might, I might think, hmm, I wonder what I'm going to see in the sagittal plane. So we'll look at the running and maybe there's a forward lean. Maybe uh, there's a backward lean because it goes both ways. So then we can use the sagittal plane alignment to help us reorganize that sense of where upright has actually got to. So the central nervous system thinks that's upright. Does it need to be there? Well, we don't know. We just ask the question. So a fence, a lamppost, a wall, all of these things are very handy. They're all outdoors and you can use them to get a sense of, well, where is my upright? So that the person just butts their bottom and their rib cage against the wall. You can even leave the head out of it for the moment, just stand there. Is is that comfortable without leaning against the wall? So the feet are so much away from the wall that it just is, they're just there. They're not too far. They're not too close. Um, you are just touching the wall. And is that comfortable? For some, just even doing that is uncomfortable their their pelvis wants to peel off. So suddenly we get some information that actually the pelvis wants to be ahead of the ribcage all the time. Oh, juicy information. And we can start to feed that into some kind of drill. Then um, say they are comfortable, their, their pelvis and their ribcage are aligned against the wall and they're, they're comfortable. So then can get can they get their head against the wall? Can they do that effortlessly? Or do they have to tip their head back in order to do that? And actually, it's not very comfortable. Can they just send their skull backwards so that the back of their skull meets the same alignment as the apex of the ribcage curve and the butt cheeks? And for many, they can't because their head is forward. And that's kind of... uh, synonymous with Western living and mobile phones. And, you know, this isn't a lecture on how uh, how we should be or shouldn't be. It's just a matter of fact. Lots of people have a forward head because of a lifestyle. And But it doesn't matter. It, it, we can just note that and think, well, we can help that along. Sometimes a head needs to be forward for the job to be done. But we don't want to stay in that posture. We don't want the posture that we habitually use in our day-to-day life to become the posture from which we have to revolve. So we can always unravel a little bit and then we can use a sagittal cog uh, to start to mobilize the joints in the sagittal plane to keep things nice and simple because gait is complex. Everything is happening all at once. Everything is happening in three dimensions all all at once. And it messes with people's heads. Where do you start? You have to start somewhere. Otherwise, it's a mess. That's my my friend Chris Reeder always says that. And it, it just makes sense. We need to not be in a mess. So we need to start somewhere. A wall is a great place to start. Is it comfortable? Can you? And then you do a few drills. So uh, sagittal cog is simply keeping the head and the rib cage and the butt against the wall. Can you lift the chest 
or stick your tailbone out or nod your head? And can everything just cog-like move and create and maintain contact with the wall? Or if you try and maintain contact with the wall, does nothing move? In which case you now know that there isn't sagittal plane movement in those joints. So it's both, as exactly as you um, beautifully expressed it before, it's a marker and the solution. So you have this way of checking your status, your progress, and making progress at the same time by repetitively meeting resistance, never pushing past, never creating pain, never pushing where your body doesn't want to go, but just inviting, going slow and inviting movement into that area. And then very quickly, people will do a couple of cogs, they'll step away, they'll feel different, they'll take that into their run, I don't even need to tell them to do anything. They just are different and invariably more upright. Their central nervous system has discovered, well, they quite like that. The central nervous system didn't know that where where they were was not um, effortlessly aligned. It's now discovered more effortlessly aligned. It might it might still have, be a work in progress. It doesn't matter. It's better. All we want is better, not right, not wrong, just better. And it's just a simple way of doing that. I, I really like how you say that. It's not, there's not, or the idea that there's a perfect, I think really messes with people like, oh, this guy's form is perfect. Will you be like that? <laughs> you know, it's, or, or, or and um, I was going to say too, back with the, as you were talking about the sagittal plane, the, the American coaches I was mentioning, it, it was kind of the same thing in the sense of um, not just training the sagittal plane, but you're, you're optimizing it. You're, you're teaching awareness of it. And um, in, in the gym, I think it's it was more about inhibiting the muscles that are overactive to give you a little better posture and position. And then you can get into frontal. And I, in those cogs you were mentioning, and I, I couldn't agree, I think it's such an awesome thing to have athletes do those because oftentimes the just general lack of awareness of what the spine is doing is pretty astounding. <laughs> like, I, I mean, especially uh, just the feedback that a wall gives you for like you said where what where your body is positioned and uh, i know it's uh and maybe i could put these one like it'd be great to have one of these in the show notes or something like that but could you take me through uh like the amazonian versus hunchback because i think that like athletic posture or the posture and position of track coaches always talk about the importance of it but i like you said i do think it's such a center point because if you're if your head's forward right like no no rotational or or side bending or crossover gate kate gate type work is really going to matter at all right like it's because you're not you're not balanced you're not centering you know and my work with uh, my mentor here in the states Darian Barr, the first thing he'll have athletes do is an athletic posture uh, assessment and 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 teaching them that and so in what does the the amazonian versus hunchback specifically uh i know you're against the wall but what does that entail and how do you how do you go through it? Um, and and I, I guess you would you would use that as a before and after running. But how do you? Uh, how does that that specifically unfold? So by moving the joints in uh, in this aligned space and asking if the movement is even possible in the aligned space, of course you're having a knock on effect on all the soft tissue that crosses the joints. So at the, 
at one end of the scale, you're discovering if there's movement at the joints. At the other end of the scale, you're actually firing up uh, muscles that may have gone to sleep, forcing other areas to do more. So it's it's rarely about stopping anything doing too much. It's all about the balance that is inherently created when you wake up the stuff that was doing nothing. So if I see a crazy arm swing, I never try and inhibit the crazy arm swing. I think, oh, okay, well, that arm isn't swinging at all. Why isn't it swinging? Let, let's just find a way to um, create. Uh, it might be not swinging because uh, the scap has got stuck and we'll wind the scap in and out a bit and then it'll swing and the other crazy one won't swing as much because it's always a balance, front, back, left, right. It's always balanced. Your body is seeking balance. We do not need to inhibit. We just, we need to wake up and the in inhibition kind of follows invariably. So in the, in the sagittal cog, do you want me to talk through the actual movement? Would that be, is that what you'd like? Oh yeah, please. Oh, okay. So just before we do that, uh, listeners might want to join in. So if you if you just lean the torso slightly forward and turn your head to look over your shoulder, don't move your shoulders, but just lean forward a little bit and turn your head and see what your peripheral vision is. You can do this seated, you can do it standing. It doesn't really matter. And then don't lean forward and just kind of imagine that you're, um, you're, your ribcage is umbrellaing your pelvis. And then turn your head to look over your shoulder. Uh, short, and I've got a fuse neck. <laughs> uh, I've got three fused spine, uh, C-spine uh, vertebra. And in even I can feel that I have a massive improvement in the range of motion when my head isn't um, forward of its axis. And it's not that there is a perfect alignment. It's just that when the bones are stacked effortlessly, it is in a position for maximal rotation, which is maximum potential because we are transverse plane rotational mammals in the field of gravity, which is our efficiency above all other mammals. Everybody else has got to bounce around going up and down or a bit sideways. We can just kind of rotate with hardly any vertical oscillation. But if your rotations are limited, you are instantly less efficient. So with that in mind, having discovered that with your head just hanging in its usual place, you have less rotation in the next spine than when your head is maybe having a sense of being as if it's a little bit further back than usual. But then you can just glance in the mirror and just think, oh, <laughs> actually, that's just stacked. And discovering that you've got this much more and for you, your maximal rotation at that point, then you might want to take that further and take it into the entire spine. So to talk you through the drill, you would find a, a vertical surface against which to stand. Heels don't touch the, the wall, butt and rib cage do. You want to send the, the skull as close to the wall as you can. If you can't quite make it because it hurts, don't push it. But just have a horizontal jaw, a relaxed horizontal jaw, and just send the skull backwards until you meet your resistance. Then... There's many ways to do it. It's described five different ways in the book. Uh, so if we just start uh, from the pelvis and you would, the cog is the tailbone comes up 
or the pubic bone goes down. A heavy pubic bone is often more comfortable than a tailbone that's light. So the tailbone goes down, the uh, xiphoid process, the, uh, the little button at the base of the chest, the base of the breastbone, that goes up and the chin goes down because wherever the pubic bone goes, so does your nose. That's the easy way to remember it. And if that has happened, what you'll find is your, if you're with, with honed awareness, you will have had a slight internal rotation of the thigh bone in the pelvis, in the hip socket as the pelvis is anteriorly tilted with pubic bone down, which will send uh, the knees into a slight flexion and the foot into a pronation. There are only two foot shapes. One is splat, yeti foot, pronation, open joints on the sole and the um, inside edge and supination, which is the locked rigid lever over which we propel, which is five sevenths of the gait cycle, if you break the gait cycle into seven easily identifiable parts. So critically important to be able to supinate, but unless you pronate, you can never move into supination, which is another conversation. But uh, so the end result of Amazonian warrior is uh, a chin that has dropped to a lifting chest because the nose has followed the pubic bone which has descended and uh, knees that have uh, come together slightly because of the internal rotation and adduction of the thigh bone in the hip socket and pronated feet. So we have Amazonian warrior with knock knees. That's the way to remember the whole movement. And then if we go the other way, we let all of that tension go and then we go the other way. So now the tailbone is heavy. So you're sliding the tailbone down against the wall. And that should send the, the top of the pelvis backwards, which will pull the lumbar spine, the lower back, flatter. It may reach the wall, it may not, depending on your mobility. And then the pubic bone is going up because the tailbone is going down, which will pull the xiphoid process, the knobbly bit at the bottom of the, uh, the breastbone, they, it pulls it together. So this is your huge ab loading. This is spinal flexion, big ab crunch. It starts the journey of ma magnificent oblique action once we have transverse plane. So this is where you want to access your ab contraction in spinal flexion. But then every, everybody is doing it with their hands behind their head, cranking their head up and actually in spine mechanics at this moment, when the pubic bone has come up and the cipher process has gone down and the rib cage has tipped forwards, the head has tipped back. So we're in C-spine extension. So when people are doing the ab crunches to uh, create their six pack, they're, invariably their heads are all going the wrong way. And, and so, you know, neck muscles are strained and mechanics are messed with and it's just being mindless being kind don't be mean <laughs> just really don't be mean so the head should have tipped back so at this point the head is tipped back so you've got contact on the wall towards the crown of the head you'll have um mid-back contact with the flexion of the spine with the shoulders having peeled off the wall the back wall of the pelvis and or the lower lumbars are in contact and now the uh, the posterior tilt of the pelvis will have externally rotated uh, the thigh bone. 
the knee would have straightened and now you'll be on the outside um, of the heels rather than the inside of the heels and the foot would have um, supinated. So now we have, uh, so we have Amazon, we've gone from Amazonian warrior with not knees to hunchback uh, with bandy legs or bow legs. So the, the, I use um, evocative language throughout the book to help people remember. Mm-hmm. So uh, Amazonian warrior never seems to have knock knees, but here with great spine mechanics, he definitely has knock knees. <laughs> and um, and Hunchback, who uh, perhaps would previously have uh, been drawn as a cartoon, uh, the slouched person with the knock knees. No, no, no. The, the, the slouch is, and you need to be able to do a really good slouch to have great spine mechanics, the slouch should have bandy legs with um, the knees traveling away from each other uh, and the weight more on the outside of the heel. And you can just move in and out of that space. And every time you do it, if you do three, the first one is cranky. This is this is a coordination issue. The second will be better. And the third will always be best. And you don't do it too many times because then you'll lose focus and you will just be practicing rubbish and bypassing joints. Yeah, I, I like the detailed description. I had, I think the very rough description of it to a degree is you could just say you're doing kind of like the cat cow is the wall with feedback. But I like how those little fine details, I think, are really important um, because like the abs, so especially. I'm yeah. said that because the cat cow, the head goes the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. So you, so you could do cat cow and then switch the head up. So the cat, uh, the head... Um, normally is going down, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And uh, the the cow, the head is going up. So the cat, the head tips back. So the cat sees where he's going. And the cow, uh, the cow, I'm just making it up, the cow needs to eat grass. So <laughs> the cow's head, the, the, the neck needs to be in flexion for cow uh, if, you do, if you do cat cow. Yeah, I think that's really important. It takes me back to when, and I see this occasionally with swimmers, especially perhaps backstrokers. And then I've also heard Douglas Heal, uh, founder of Be Activated, talk about how Pilates instructors oftentimes have extremely tense necks and cervical um, neck muscles because they're always, they're pairing um, neck flexion with the, the ab crunch. And I like in your book, and just this idea that and Adarian Barr has mentioned it too, this idea that you can find, if you run right and run well, you can find the muscle of ac- activation you're seeking in running. You can get abs, you can get glutes. You don't need to sit there and do, and I don't think, I don't think a little bit of ab work is bad by any means, as long as it's not producing poor patterns, which it easily, you know, I have seen it, you know, act overactivate the neck for sure. Uh, but I love the idea of how when you have the posture awareness and it fits and it works correctly, you're getting these things out of running. And then if you sprint, you're amplifying it. And then we get those some of the muscles we see on sprinters that we think are, are great. And they are. Um, you, It's like, well, did that sprinter get those glutes by in the squat rack or they get it by sprinting and they're activating the muscles the correct way? You know, I mean, I don't think the squat rack is bad by any means that it, it can it can they can work together. But you have to have the the basic activation there or the basic posture to get the muscles you want. I think with the abs, that's always been the trick. That's the thing I'm always kind of trying to continue to learn and wrap my head around is how do we feel abs activating more correctly in the movement? And I think you kind of answered my question a little bit there in the sense of, of, well, what pairs with what? Because you you don't want to get the, if you're in the wrong position, then it's not going to be optimal. Yeah, so you've got the eccentric loading of rex abdominis in um, Amazonian or cow, 
uh, and then uh, the concentric contraction in cat, uh, and then the obliques come in with the transverse plane. And of course, in gait, whether you're walking or running, if you're upright, you have this optimal um, loading of the uh, abdominal wall with the anterior tilt of the pelvis pushing the innards, your innards against the abdominal wall, uh, creating the need for the abdominal wall to contract. And you've got the counter rotation between the pelvis and the rib cage firing the obliques. That there's no need to do anything else. If you're moving in the field of gravity at whatever pace, whatever intensity, with all of your um, ab muscles always firing, always, every single step they have to fire and they're switching uh, between all the time continually. So when I'm, when I'm lean, I have an eight pack, which isn't particularly nice on a girl, but you know, it's there because it's, it's always having to be fired with every step I take. It just, it's just there. Yeah, that's it's the ultimate. The way the body moves naturally is the ultimate medicine. It's the ultimate exercise. I think we just try to reverse, like reverse aesthetic, everything, you know. And and it, but I mean, and as this whole episode is gone, it does take some tension, intention, and willpower and desire to notice to get this stuff to work because it's not. It is simple, but it's also very complex as you get into it. And that's why I, I mean, I to me, I love this stuff, and I, I was. It's it's worth the effort to go through because the end result is just so profound. I I, I do um, I I have one more quick question for you before our, our time is up, and I know this could probably be an hour question, and, um, but I, I really appreciate how you've been able to take such complex ideas and 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 boil it down to um, a fairly short time frames in context of I think what could be, but but crossover running is a big thing. So frontal plane, so we have the sagittal plane and the Amazonian hunchback, and then so the frontal plane. I think we talk a lot about in the track community, there's a lot of the crossover running where the, if you're running on a line, a track lane, a track line, the feet would be too narrow or almost stepping over each other in that frontal plane. What, um, what are your thoughts on that? And what are some sensory drills and, and ideas that we can use to start to remedy that type of thing? Yeah, it's, uh, I see it in a lot of track runners. Um, it, if there is, crossover if you watch the pelvis move uh there will be probably very little hike drop very little seesaw uh of the pelvis and uh very little rotation so once again it boils down to the pelvis isn't moving and if if you run and you deliberately block the pelvis from any rotation you kind of end up uh, the rotation will come from the knee down. So the legs will dish around uh, and, 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 and form a, a, almost a knock-kneed look, uh, which is derived if one thing doesn't move, something else is going to have to move more. Uh, so there's, there's two things um, with uh, crossover runners. It's, there's a, a knock-kneed dishing around of the, um, the lower leg and literally a V-shaped uh, leg from the hip where they're running on the outsides of their feet. So they're never accessing uh, the ball of the foot. So these um, uh, these people tend to have IT band issues. Uh, they tend to have um, knee issues as well as the dishing around um, with the, uh, the, the knees going inwards runners. 
They also tend to have a lot of um, lateral shin issues, um, um, outside ankle sprain uh, issues. Uh, And the... The question is always, well, why are you are you even aware? Do you even do you know that you're using the full breadth of your foot? So if so, there are many reasons why somebody might be doing that. And it's to do with closing a groin because uh, there might be uh, an appendix scar there. So it's always worthwhile looking at scars uh, when you see crossover running. Always check scars, uh, especially around the groin even if it's an old appendix scar. Um, and uh, the, um, I lost my train of thought. Uh, so check the scars. Uh, yeah, so it, it can be a closing or it can be a lack of awareness um, of the full breadth of the foot, which is really common because people have a perception that they need to be running on the outsides of the feet. Uh, lots of people have a horror of um, a foot that is um, anti-pronation devices, orthotic shoes um, are so uh, endemic in our society that we think uh, that pronation is a bad thing. We think that a foot making full contact with the ground is a bad thing. And so these people have their sort of light on their feet and they're sprightly and, oh yes, you're light on your feet, and but they're, they're simply on the edges. So a really easy way of um, finding their space, they jump up and down the spot. And I often use, um, if I've got them, the, my football uh, sports cones. And if I don't, I'll just find uh, uh, a stone uh, or I'll take my shoe off and they'll jump up and down the spot and they'll land. And I won't be able to put, 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 put my shoe widthways in the gap between their feet. And because they don't know that they're, uh, crossover running they they have no sense of it and and they they then we do the drill where how wide do your feet have to be for you to find the whole breadth of the foot so it's just finding just jumping down the spot and and showing them how narrow it is and then asking them to correlate that to what they feel pressure wise under their feet then um, enables them to go to the next step, which is, well, okay, well, you, you could feel the outside of your feet. Now, where do you need to jump up and down to find the whole breadth of each foot? And so they'll find it. They always will. And they'll look down and it's, you know, hip distance apart. It's always hip distance apart. Because if you go wider, and I always encourage them to go wider, then they get the ball of the foot, but now they lose the outside of the foot. So there's this beautiful gold Goldilocks tracking width. There's a sweet spot. Where do they access the full breadth of each foot? And then they say, oh, my God, I can't possibly run like this. I feel like I've wet myself. So then we do a few drills to um, open the joint spaces that have got locked down. So these hips, they don't know how to be abducted. So we need a, a movement pattern that creates hip abduction Um, to show the brain that, look, you can go there. It's fine. Nothing dreadful is going to happen. It's not a stretch. You're not pulling anything. You're not trying to make it bigger. You're inviting space and light into the area. And and then it's about uh, when they go into their run, because the motor program is so strong, they can easily revert back. It's about keeping that awareness. 
So it's padding so they can jump up on the spot until they find their full breadth of foot and then they pad forward, gathering pace. And then as soon as they lose their full breadth, they can pause, go on the spot again, find their full breadth and then uh, carry on. And meanwhile, they are attaching a feeling to the sense of what they're apart from the fact that they feel like they're running as if they've got a nappy on or they wet themselves, they're now feeling, oh, it feels like I'm, there's less tension in my hips. Oh, it feels like I'm just dangling my thigh bones. Oh my, oh my goodness, my pelvis feels like I'm Beyonce because it's now moving as opposed to being stiff. And if they're really resistant, I'll just film them. Because if they see that there's heart, there's invariably hardly any movement, but it feels so magnified when there has been no movement that any movement feels ginormous. And then when they see that they don't look like how they feel they look, then they, they relax and, and let it happen. And then before the end of that session, they will not be able to go back to crossover running because it will feel so crazy. It will feel unpleasant, uncomfortable, less efficient, less relaxed. So it's a step-by-step process at, at the end of which it should feel a nicer place to be. And the frontal cog movement is simply, you imagine yourself in a test tube and you just bend a knee and you don't let the body, uh, the upper body move sideways. You just bend a knee and one uh, one hip will slide up uh, because you bent a knee and that that's the, the hip that's attached to the knee that's bent has gone down. So the other hip has come up. And if you're in a test tube, you've suddenly uh, created an adduction and an abduction that may, ne- may not have happened or you just slide your pelvis in space uh, across so that the pelvis extends outside an ankle joint and make a banana in that same shape as if you're a teapot and, and just create an adduction and an abduction that way. Just make it really clean. And then a wall becomes really handy again because you're, you're wanting to either be a test tube uh, bending a knee uh, without any rotation And so many people need a rotation to access the movement. So therefore, they can't move in that plane. So they're stuck with their crossover because they actually can't separate uh, it from the rotation. So they're living in their rotation without the frontal plane separation. Yeah, I've always that was something that took me a few years to kind of figure out is I would have athletes do a lunge and then a side pair it with a side bend. And some athletes just couldn't do it and would do kind of a weird twisty thing, but I never could put my finger on it until I was realized they had no frontal plane movement. <laughs> and those athletes would invariably be a crossover runners as well. And I, I like, I think the sim, a sim, really simple thing that I think of is just athletes jumping rope. And so often the, the tendency is just super narrow tracking with, um, and, and then to say, so, and what you were saying is to teach people to be basically go subtly wider in that hopping with until you feel essentially you feel your inside the, the full like breadth of the transverse arch or the, the whole ball of the foot in each foot and what's that yeah. width where you can hop and feel that and then taking that using that and running and then adding in the frontal planar side bending dynamics to it as well 
another really easy one is just to edge the feet so it's as if you're skiing and you just find the long edges of each foot because for so many people they have a long edge but we have two long edges we have an inside and an outside so they know one and their brain doesn't know the other so you can just roll your feet in and find your inside edges roll your feet out and find your outside edges have one as if you're skiing have one outside one inside just find those outside edges show or the, the long edges show the brain these long edges because what you want for uh, um, five sevenths of the gait cycle a quality supination is contact across the, the full breadth of the foot as you propel from the ball of the foot to the pinky because that's your uh, your windlass mechanism this is your um uh so you know the story, do you know, um, shall I tell the, Chris quickly the story about the uh, the Finnish truck drivers? Sure. So they know, so they know how many trees to wrap their um, rope around to winch the payload that has crashed on the frozen lake. Because every trunk, every uh, tree, uh, every pulley halves the payload. And we have two in each foot. So uh, when I do this in a workshop, um, there's lots of wonderful light bulb moments because nobody's ever thought about it. If you imagine your body weight, can you pick your body weight up off the floor? Not many people can pick their body weight up off the floor, but your feet, one foot is doing it when you run with every step. It's picking your body weight up off the floor and checking it in the onion, you're landing back down on it. And Yes, we have efficiencies everywhere, but it, down at the feet, we have two in each foot pulley systems. So we're halving the payload twice when you're on one foot. And when you're doing your bilateral calf raises, you're halving the payload uh, four times uh, because you've got four pulley systems. So if, your ball, if the ball of your foot isn't making good contact with the pinky as well, you are not able, you, you, your pulley systems are null and void. So your effort getting you off the ground is now muscular instead of pulley systems. So it, it's the, the importance of the ball of the foot and toe extension and the axis of the full breadth of the foot cannot be overstated. This is what makes life easy for us. And, and we're just not even noticing. Yeah, noticing is just such. Um, it's it's been the running theme, and it's it's something that I think as we I've talked to you and and everyone listening listens to this. I, I, to know the things to notice uh, is just so powerful. But uh, Helen, I think that's all the time I have for the show today. Thank you so much for your time and your thorough explanations and details of this uh, critical aspect of everything we do. Just the gate cycle running, and and it's so important. And I thank you again for your time with us today. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for letting me know about my favorite subject. Thanks for tuning in for another episode. Appreciate you guys being here with us. And that was a fun show. Lots of information. And starting to unpack gate, that that last on the list of all those main human movements, but the most important one and one that does take time to learn, understand, and appreciate. And I'm hoping that you guys all have way more, uh, that you guys have more tools in your tool bag and ideas on how to approach that with athletics. 
All right. As always, uh, if you enjoyed the show, don't hesitate. Leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to us on. Also, our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com. We appreciate them. They've been a longtime supporter of the show. So shout out to SimplyFaster.com and everything they're doing. They have great, they have an amazing sports performance technology store in their online store. Also a great blog that's updated regularly. So be sure to check them out and support them. And I'm, I'm signing off for this week. We'll see you guys around. Have a good one.